Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's sermon podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Now, I typically don't like to do long intros. I like to have the text read and then jump right in. But with this being our first gathering, I feel like I need to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we are going in our uh, Sunday morning times of, of preaching and teaching. And so we are having three, our three summer services. And in those services, we felt it would be really good to cover our three main kind of points of our mission and vision statement, which is that we exist to behold, to build, and to bless. So first and foremost, we primarily exist as a church to behold God, to worship him, to exalt him. And as we are doing that, then he allows us to take part in building up the body of Christ and in blessing the city. And so today we are talking about beholding God and then building up the body of Christ and blessing the city will be the next sermons that we do in the summer. And then in September, the plan is to start then preaching through a book of the Bible. We'll most likely uh, be going through the book of First Peter, um, and we'll be able to wrap that up hopefully around the Advent season to have a time leading up to Advent. Um, we, we want to leave room for the Spirit to work and move in, in what we're preaching, but right now this is kind of the tentative plan. And then in January then, uh, we're going to take three weeks where we just stop doing all the things that we're doing, stop the activities, stop, stop the city groups, stop the planning, and we're going to be in a rhythm of, as a church, committing, recommitting ourselves to prayer, to calling out to God, to seeking Him, and we, we figured to get in a healthy uh, rhythm of this, it would be good at the start of every year, every January, to take time where we just stop doing, and we just start being, and we call out to God and see what He wants for us and for our church in that next year. So that's what we'll be doing then in January. And then we'll hop back into another, another book of the Bible. Um, also, as we are then preaching through books of the Bible, sorry, this is my uh, first uh, time wearing this uh, little Britney Spears mic thing. Uh, then we will jump back into another book of the Bible. And as we, are, as we are preaching expositionally through books of the Bible, we do then want to take times about once a month where we, we step out of whatever book we're teaching and give a sermon that's going to be um, probably titled something like The Story of Redemption, right? We're going to give you more kind of big picture story of redemption because we want you, as you come to this church, to, yes, go through books of the Bible verse by verse with us, but we also want you to have a healthy understanding of the whole story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to restoration. So um, the, the goal would be that if you came for two years, that you would get through, you know, in these once a month sermons, kind of get through the whole story of redemption with us. So that is where we are going. Uh, but today we are talking about beholding God. And it is the heartbeat and the drive behind my, call, my personal call to ministry, right? It, it is what I believe both the church and the city need. I believe it's what both Christians and non-Christians need. I believe it's both what, what on-fire Christians and maybe complacent Christians need. It's that we need more of God. We have a longing for God. And so we want to put God before you in our songs, in our preaching, in our fellowship, in our, in our service activities, in our home groups. Like, we want to put God before you. And this is ultimately what we need. This is the good news of the gospel. Yes, that we are saved, but that we get God. Like, we, we get God. Like, we want to put God in front of you. And so that's why my prayer for all of us through all this church planting talk has been 
2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding God is what transforms lives, is what causes transformation. And so we want to always be beholding God. So what, what does it mean to behold? Let's start there, okay? To behold something is, yes, to see something. I, I think that's probably what we first think of. So yes, we see something or someone, but it's also to gaze at it. And it's not just to see it, not just to gaze at it, but it's to perceive it. So it's to understand more of it as you grow in your knowledge of it, as you grow in your experience of it. And so when we're talking about God, talking about beholding God, it's we want, to, we want you to have a fuller picture of the true God. We want you to see him as he truly is. We want you to grow in your, your knowledge of him as well as your experience with him. And so we want to, yes, we want to gaze at his beauty. We want to know him more fully, and we want to see him as he truly is. And a lot of the psalmists have similar heartbeats and desires as well. We see in Psalm 70, 70, uh, sorry, 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And then we see in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So when we are gathering, we are gathering as worshipers, as beholders. We are exalting God above all. We are treasuring him above everything else. And we are beholding, we are seeing, we are perceiving as we grow in our knowledge and our experience of him. Because you see, we are always beholding something. It's in, it's in the DNA of human beings. We are always beholding something. Just oftentimes we are beholding ourselves right? We, we, we live life like we're at the gym surrounded by those mirrors where you just see yourself, right? That's many of our lives. We're just looking at ourselves, thinking of ourselves, beholding ourselves, okay? And I don't know about you guys. I don't know at what point those mirrors stop going from being encouraging and now they're discouraging, right? Right? We want less mirrors, more TVs now, right? But Many times we are exalting ourselves. We are thinking of ourselves. We are gazing at ourselves. And if we could be honest, we are just miserable doing it. I mean, if I think about the days that I'm the most anxious or the most feeling down or the days I'm feeling the most crummy, it is usually the days that I am gazing at myself, that I'm putting myself above all, that I'm thinking about myself and it's, it's miserable. But the gospel frees us to stop beholding ourselves and to start beholding God. Now, I'm going to use that phrase, the gospel, a lot. I think most of us have some understanding of it, but I'll, I'll repeat this time and time again. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners, that this salvation was accomplished through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it is received by grace through faith. And now we have the rest of our lives to talk through the implications of the gospel. And one of those is we are freed from beholding ourselves and we can start beholding God. But even churches have now kind of started to drift away from this. They've forgotten who we are to be beholding. And I heard a preacher recently, he quoted a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, which gave a warning saying that some churches have started to talk more about Christianity than Christ. Some churches have started to talk more about Christianity than Christ. 
And that should not sit well with us. So by the grace of God, our commitment will be to focus way more on who God is and what he has done rather than what we are to do about it. Because we believe that this is what brings lasting refreshment and life and transformation to a church. It's not you walking out of here feeling good because maybe the music was really good or the preacher was really funny or the kids' programs were so great. Like, when you leave churches, that, that's just like, and that's all you experience, that's a, uh, something that goes away, like, by Monday morning, right? But lasting refreshment that lasts all throughout the week is when you, we have this set-apart time as a body of believers. We gather together to remind one another to stop beholding ourselves and to start beholding God. And so we walk out of here having seen and perceived and know more of and experienced more of God. That is what will lead to lasting refreshment and transformation. Well, who is this God that we are to be beholding? And that is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together today. So just so you guys know, and however long that God allows me to have a ministry here and to, to preach to you, it will always be my goal to put God on display. And I want to show you all of his attributes and for you to know just the depth and the richness in his character and who he is. But in our first gathering, where we have to start, we have to start with his holiness. We have to start with his holiness. We are starting here because I agree with what Jonathan Edwards said, who said this. He said, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness. A delight in his holiness. And not with a delight in any other attribute, for no other attribute is truly lovely without this. Now let that sink in, chew on that a little bit, let that marinate. We're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But I want us to walk out of here with a delight in his holiness. So let's go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now let's stop there for a second. If you're not familiar with King Uzziah, you can read a little bit more about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But essentially, he had ruled Judah for 52 years. And he had been faithful for most of that 52 years, and, and the people prospered, and things were going well, and he, he got healthy, he was wealthy, right? But when he was strong, at the height of his success and earthly treasures and all that, he grew proud. And then he became unfaithful to God. And you see, in his pride, he not only wanted to have political authority over the people as king, but he also wanted to have spiritual authority over them as a priest. So he nonchalantly goes into the temple to offer a, a sacrifice or to send up, to burn incense to God, which was only for the priest to do. And so in his pride, he was mocking the holiness of God and going lightly before him. And as we will see all throughout this sermon, when pride comes into the presence of God, it is struck down quickly. So King Uzziah, in his pride, goes into the temple to burn incense, and God strikes him with leprosy. And then the rest of his life, King Uzziah had to live in isolation until he eventually passed away. So we read in this verse, it was the year that King Uzziah died. Now, you can imagine just some of the anxiety and uncertainty that might have been amongst the people. 
right? I mean, think about us. Every four years or every election year, there's like this anxiety, uncertainty amongst us. And these people had had the same ruler for 52 years. And things in general had gone well. So they lost their ruler of 52 years, and I'm sure the people were kind of just scampering, wondering, nervous about what's going to happen. But Isaiah uses this first verse to contrast two different kings and to show us who our ultimate trust should be in. Because in the year that a mere mortal man who God allowed to be king, in the year that that guy died, who was mere flesh, the guy that, that, that died, that all human kings and rulers will do, they will eventually die. In the year he died, Isaiah reminded the people who was actually sitting on the true throne. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the immensity of God is shown through his robe filling the temple. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have maybe heard sermons preached on this passage before, but a lot of royalty, right, they showed their honor and prestige through the train of their robe. So you can imagine, God's, it filled the temple. How, how great is this ruler? How great is this king? Who is this, this king that could wear such a robe? So may we be reminded of the immensity of God, the bigness, the greatness of God. But do we remember that he is also high and lifted up? Do we remember that he is high and lifted up? Now, there have been some beautiful and just intimate moments with God that I have experienced through understanding and knowing that God is close, right? That, that, that he is actively involved in our lives. Like, that's a beautiful thing. That, that he cares for us. That he knows every head on our head, like every hair on our head, right? That he formed us in our mother's womb. And there have just been some beautiful things that have come from understanding that we can have this personal relationship with God and this closeness with him. But like any truth about God, it can start to be twisted and distorted if we don't understand it in light of all of Scripture, in light of all of who God is. Because yes, he is close, but he is also high and lifted up. And his transcendence has to be understood as well. He is above us. He is independent of us. He cannot be manipulated by us. So here is the danger when we don't remember that God is high and lifted up. Here's the danger. We start to make him just like us. You guys ever do this? Come on now, we're in church. You can't be lying. We start to make him just like us. We start assuming that he is just like us. And, and let me explain what I mean by this, okay? We start making him just like us when we start singing songs like he's our boyfriend, right? Any youth group kids still going through rehab from those Jesus is my boyfriend songs? Yeah. All right. I'm with you. We'll start a group. It's okay. We start making Jesus just like us when we, when we make bumper stickers saying he's our co-pilot, right? 
That, that, that's making him just like us. We start treating God like he's just like us when we start praying to him like he's, he's Siri or a, a genie in the bottle, right? We make him just like us when we start reading our Bible and come across something that we don't like and say, well, he probably didn't mean that because that's not how I would do it or that's not how I would say it. Or we start mishandling theology because that just doesn't really sit right with us. You know, that's probably not how God acts because that's not what I would do. And so then people start manipulating God, manipulating scripture, manipulating Jesus to make him just like them, to make them into whatever version that sits right with them. And so now we have seen a large amount of young people have walked out of the church. Now, they've walked out for a lot of different reasons, but I believe one reason is they've been preached to God who is just like them, and they can find God's way better than that anywhere else in the world. And then we have seen my generation just crippled with anxiety and fear. Why is that? Is it, is it my generation has so many more things to be anxious about than any other past generation? Or is it we've been preached a God who is too small and a grace that has been too cheap, and yes, we know that God loves us, we know he's close, we just don't know if we can trust that he's powerful enough to do anything about it. And in general, if I can sum up our air of not remembering that God is high and lifted up, our air is that we have started to view God in light of humanity as opposed to humanity in light of God. We have started to view God in light of humanity as opposed to humanity in light of God. And God calls us out on it in the Psalms. He says in Psalm 50, 21, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. God says, you thought I was like you. I am high and lifted up. I am beyond manipulation. I am independent. I am God and there is no one like me. A.W. Tozer comments on this as well. He says, worship, I say, rises or falls with our concept of God. That is why I do not believe in these half-converted cowboys who call God the man upstairs. I do not think they worship at all because their concept of God is unworthy of God and unworthy of them. And listen to this. If there is one terrible disease in the church of Christ, it is that we do not see God as great as he is. We're too familiar with God. Now, now, if you don't like that phrase, we're too familiar with God, he goes on to explain a little bit more. He says, communion with God is one thing. Familiarity with God is quite another thing. We do not see God as great as he is. We do not remember that he is not like us. He is high and lifted up. Look at verse two. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. The Hebrew word for seraphim means flames. These were fiery, angelic beings. You could just imagine just the greatness 
of these fiery, angelic beings who, even them, who are unblemished by sin, who were created for this purpose of worshiping God, even them, they have to cover their face and their feet in the presence of God. This, mad, this majestic God has overwhelmed them. They have to cover their face and their feet. And look at verse 3. Look what they call out. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Holy, holy, holy. Now, in biblical writing, when you see repetition, that should grab your attention, okay? It means Listen up, this is really important, okay? We saw it when Jesus taught, he would say, truly, truly, I say to you, that meant, hey, you better really listen to what he says. Now, my advice would be, whenever Jesus speaks, you should probably listen to him, but especially when he says truly, truly, okay? So here we see not only a double repetition, which means pay attention, but we see a triple repetition, which means, yes, pay attention, but not only is God holy, it is saying he is absolutely holy, and he is the source of all holiness. God is holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely holy, and he is the source of all holiness. Well, what does holy mean? We say it a lot in church. We use it with a lot of religious things. What does holy mean? Well, in one sense, holy means this pure, this purity, unblemished, clean, righteous. But then it also has this aspect of being set apart and unique and separate from. And then in the New Testament, we see that the word holy could be translated the awful thing. The awful thing. Or maybe better put the full of all thing. All right? I don't know how many of us call God the awful thing, but it is the full of all thing. That is the Holy One. He is pure. He is righteous. He is light, but He is set apart. He is unique, and He is full of all. Now, I've heard every good sermon has a C.S. Lewis quote, so here's mine from Mere Christianity. Okay. He says, God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are only playing with religion. God is the only comfort. We're not saying he's not the comfort, but he is also the supreme terror, full of awe, the Holy One, set apart, unique, separate from us. Now, the Bible uses and speaks of a lot of things in reference to holiness and holy things, right? So here's where we need to understand the two different ways that the Bible uses the word holy. So it does use it in reference to God, who is the only holy one, is the only holy, holy, holy one. So God is the only absolutely holy one, and he is the source of all holiness, but then we also see it used for holy people and places and cities and things. And these all have received a holiness. They are essentially holy by association. They have received a holiness from outside of themselves. A holiness has been imparted to them. They are not absolutely holy and they are not the source of all holiness like God is. 
So think back to when Moses encountered God at the burning bush. God said, take your sandals off. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Well, was there anything special about the dirt or the clay or the mud that, that Moses was standing on? No, not, not in and of itself. It was holy by association. A holiness had been imparted to it because the source of all holiness was there. And so we see the Bible refer to holy cities, holy people, holy days. These are all set apart, unique, but they have received a holiness outside of themselves. But there is only one pure, perfect, set apart, full of all, holy one, and that is the God that we are beholding this morning. He is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. Another beautiful word we come across in this passage, glory. Glory is a word we use a lot. Maybe we don't think, think through it or really fully understand it, but a definition for glory that's been the most helpful for my understanding, it was, a, it was from Pastor John Piper who used, who used this passage to help explain holiness and glory. So he describes it as holiness is, is the essence of God's character and his being, right? It's at the core, and his glory is the beauty that radiates and emanates from this holy one. Some have also described glory as being God's manifested presence. Think of it like the sun, right? Holiness is at the center, and the glory is the beauty that radiates the earth, that we experience the heat and the light. We experience the glory. God is holy, holy, holy. This is his being. This is, and the whole earth is full of his glory. His beauty that radiates throughout the universe. Even the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Now, it's important to note that the whole earth is full of his glory. This would have confronted some Jews at the time who thought that, that the glory of God was only amongst their people or in their temple or in their city. And God's saying, no, my glory is all throughout the universe. And this confronts then even some churches who maybe wouldn't say it, but they operate as if God's glory was only in their church or in their building or in their mission and vision statement, right? No, God's glory cannot be contained by men and women. It is all throughout the universe. And if God is the source of all holiness, if he is absolutely holy, then there will never be any shortage of glory to radiate from him. So Isaiah is in the presence of absolute purity, perfection, full of all, set apart, holy one. And let's see how he responds. Verse five. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, Isaiah knows the ceremonial laws, right? 
He knows only the high priest once a year is supposed to go into the Holy of Holies and only after he's done all these cleansing, purification rituals. And even then, they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he was destroyed in the presence of God, right? So God knows, I mean, uh, Isaiah knows the laws. He knows the rules. He knows he shouldn't be where he's at. And when he realizes where he's at, he says, it's game over. He says, woe is me, I am lost, or meaning I am undone, I am ruined, I am silenced, I am a dead man. And I don't care how good Isaiah was, or how many good works he had done, or how many quiet times he had, you know, faithfully been a part of, right? If even fiery angelic beings had to cover their faces and their feet in the presence of God, how much more men and women who have rebelled against him. And so he knows he is undone. He is ruined. He is silenced. And here we see that pride is demolished in the presence of a holy God. There's no pretending or performing on Isaiah's part. There's no negotiations going on. There's no comparison games going on, right? Isaiah's not saying, well, I mean, I know I'm bad, but you should see like my neighbor or the people that I live around. Like they're actually the bad ones. No, there's none of that going on when Isaiah sees the Holy One, the source of all holiness, the absolutely Holy One. There's no pretending. There's no performing. There's no comparison games. You see, in our sin, in the presence of a holy God, we have way more in common with with murderers and rapists than we do with the Holy One. And so, if you have elevated yourself above fellow man, other people, if you have thought of yourself better than them, you are not fully beholding who God is. And see, church people, it is not us and them. It is not us in here against them. It's not us sheltered in here to stay protected from them, right? It is all of us, all of humanity, who needs saving and rescuing from this holy God. Would not our compassion for others grow if we were beholding God? Would not judgmentalism and whatever sense of superiority or self-righteousness church people can tend to have, wouldn't that all just be crushed and fall face down if we were beholding God? Beholding the Holy One always produces humility and confession. And until we behold the true and living Holy God, we live in a delusion about who we are. John Calvin wrote this. He says, Accordingly, until God reveals himself to us, we do not think that we are men, or rather, we think that we are gods. But when we have seen God, we then begin to feel and know what we are. Hence springs true humility, which consists in this, that a man makes no claims for himself and depends wholly on God. Our life, therefore, until our minds earnestly draw near to God is a vain delusion. So until we behold the true and living holy God, not only is our own life a delusion, but even the rest of God's character and his actions are distorted 
and don't make sense to us. Remember, we have to start with delighting in his holiness or else the rest of his attributes won't be as rich and the rest of his actions won't make sense to us. That's why Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's Proverbs 9.10. So if you want insight into why God does what he does, into why God is the way he is, the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Because if we don't understand his holiness, we won't understand the rest of his character. And if you don't understand that God is holy, you might even be deluded into thinking that, man, this God sounds mean. This God sounds cruel. Right? You might be thinking, in general, I'm a good person. I follow the laws. I try to do good things. I'm not as selfish as, as the next person, right? Or, or maybe you're sitting there really feeling bad for Isaiah. Like, was Isaiah really that bad of a guy? I'm sure there were worse people than Isaiah that, that should have been there in God's presence. Should he really have felt undone and ruined? Like, man, like, this God sounds mean. This God sounds cruel. No, 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 no. I would say no. God is holy. Or, or you might be thinking back to the Old Testament and that story where uh, that poor Levite dies for touching the Ark of the Covenant, right? If you guys don't know that story, the Ark of the Covenant is kind of like the mobile hotspot of God, right? Traveling around, the oxen are pulling it, right? And oxen stumbles, and this guy goes out just to like catch the Ark of the Covenant, even though God said don't touch it. It was a natural reaction. He was just going to catch it, and God struck him dead. Man. I don't know, you might be thinking, God sounds mean. God sounds cruel. No. God is holy. And absolute goodness and absolute purity and absolute light will crush any spot, blemish, and darkness in its path. If you don't believe me, go home, do an experiment, an experiment turn a light on. When the light turns on, it obliterates the darkness. There is no darkness that can stand against the light. The light obliterates it. Think with me about the temple, okay? So cutting off the Holy of Holies was this thick veil, right? This huge curtain. Um, it took like multiple people to even try to move this thing. So it was a real thick, big, heavy curtain. Now, at first thought, you could think it must be there to keep the inside all clean and holy, right? It was primarily there to protect the unclean people from being destroyed by the holiness and the pure light of God. Now go with me to think about the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed against God. They sinned against him and he sent them out of the garden. One mistake, one strike and they're out. Man, I don't know. This God sort of sounds mean. This God sounds cruel. No. God is holy. And human beings, listen, human beings, we were made to flourish in the presence of a holy God. That's what we were made. We were made to walk with him. We were made to enjoy and flourish in the presence of God. But because of sin, they couldn't be in his presence or they would have been destroyed. If they would have stayed in the garden then they would have eaten from the tree of life, and then for eternity, they would have been separated from God. 
the very presence that they were made to flourish in. They would have been separated from for eternity if he would have left them there in the garden. But you see, God in his goodness said, although my holiness would destroy you, one day it will transform you. I've got a plan so you can once again, all of humanity can flourish in my presence and behold me like you were created to do. So I want you to first sit in and feel some of the awe of this holy one, this supreme terror whose absolute goodness and light would destroy us. Who, who we were made to flourish in his presence, but because of sin, we were undone. We were ruined in it. And I want you to see the immensity that his holiness requires. This absolutely pure, this absolutely perfect God who dwells in unapproachable light. He is full of awe. He is set apart. He is unique. He is separate from. He is a God who is not like us, who is high and lifted up. How could we ever dwell with this holy one? How could we ever dwell with this holy one? Well, I think A.W. Pink says it best, so I'll just quote him. He says, What his holiness has required, his grace has provided. Come on now, A.W., that's good. What his holiness has required, his grace has provided. What his holiness has required, his grace has has provided. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah needed a holiness by association. He needed a holiness that was imparted to him. He needed something beyond himself to save him. And here we see a glimpse of the salvation that was to be accomplished once and for all through Jesus. You see, since the original disobedience and sin entering the world, this, this sin, this impurity has now spread to all human beings, to all of us. We can say we have all sinned and fallen short, right? And it's been passed down from one generation to the next. And as a result, you know, we, we all fall victim to just uh, death and destruction that await us all, right? Because of this sin and impurity that has spread. And, and, and people living in the times of the Old Testament, they, they had an understanding about some of this, right? They, they had a grip on just how dangerous this holy God was and how pure he was. Because they had all these cleansing rituals and things they had to do. And there were also things that they were not to touch or else it would defile them. It would make them impure, make them unclean. So in the book of Numbers, God tells Moses, he says to send the unclean outside of the camp, right? So that they wouldn't defile or spread their uncleanness to anybody else, right? So anyone who has leprosy says, send them out of the camp. Anyone who has a bodily discharge, send them out of the camp. Anyone who has touched a dead body, send them out of the camp. Because here we are seeing this law of nature where the unclean would make the clean defiled. So they were sent out. But then something strange happened when Jesus arrived on the scene. And he started teaching and touching people. 
because he seemed to reverse this natural order of things, right? The natural order was if something unclean touched something clean, it made it impure. Its uncleanness spread to it, right? But Jesus was doing something different. He was walking with his disciples and he would touch leprosy. He would touch those who had a bodily discharge. He would touch those who had touched a dead body or were dead. And I'm sure his disciples at the time were like, no, 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 Jesus, don't touch it. You'll be unclean. What they didn't realize at the time, and they eventually got it, was that God was redefining the future of his people. That although holiness would destroy us, he had a plan that his holiness would transform us. And what was actually happening was Jesus was making the unclean clean. Le leprosy didn't make Jesus unclean. His absolute purity and light obliterated the leprosy. Those with bodily discharges didn't make Jesus unclean. He made them clean. The dead didn't make Jesus unclean. He made them clean. And so we see life was overcoming death and light was shattering darkness and purity was cleansing the impure. And through Jesus, the presence of God was not destroying his people, it was transforming them. And at the time, I'm sure his disciples had to be thinking, who is this guy? Who is this guy, right? Now they eventually got it, right? The, John wrote in his gospel, John 12, 41, he says this, he said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, speaking of Jesus, and spoke of him. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. He saw the divine King Jesus and spoke of him. And here's a quote I want to share from Spurgeon to help us think through when people in the Old Testament saw God. He says, whenever you read in the Old Testament that any man saw the Lord, understand it to be the second person of the divine trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes himself, as we have said, visible to men and God in him. So here we see Isaiah saw the divine King Jesus in all his glory and experienced firsthand the glorious truth that what God's holiness had required, his grace was providing. And when the burning coal touched Isaiah's mouth, Isaiah's guilt was taken away and his sin was atoned for. In order for us to be transformed and not destroyed in the presence of a holy God. Our sin had to be atoned for, meaning it had to be covered over. It had to be purged. It had to, God's wrath had to be appeased. We had to be reconciled, and our guilt had to be taken away. Now, this would have been familiar to those in, in the Jewish culture, because on the Day of Atonement, every year, the priest was to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, the priest first had to bathe and cleanse and put on special garments. Then he sacrificed the bull for his own sin and his family's sin, sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant and all that. Then they would take two goats. One goat they would sacrifice and take the blood, sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat as a covering of their sin. And then they would, he would place his hand on another goat, transferring the sins of the people to the goat, and they would send it off then into the wilderness 
So this was giving everyone a picture of what would be accomplished when Jesus atoned for our sins and our guilt was taken away. What God's holiness had required, his grace has provided. And I've heard it said that Jesus is now undoing everything that Adam undid. And he victoriously cried, it is finished. And the veil in the temple was torn. He was redefining the future of his people that they could once again return to flourish in his presence. And it will ultimately culminate in Revelation 21, which says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We were made to flourish in the presence of God's holiness. And what his holiness had required, his grace has provided. And so we long and look forward to this future glorious state where all things will be made new and right, but The good news is we don't have to just sit around and wait for that. Like eternity starts now. In Christ, beholding him and flourishing in his presence can start now. That's why I pray for us, 2 Corinthians 3, right? And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In Christ, we now with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now let me remind you of that Jonathan Edwards quote that I shared at the beginning. He said, a true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute for no other attribute is truly lovely without this. Now, I don't want you to to mishear the first part of this sermon. I am not discouraging you from enjoying the closeness of God. I want you to enjoy that. I, I want you to enjoy and experience the love of God. I want you to know that that intimate, personal relationship that we can have with God. But what I am saying is that to have a healthy understanding of it, and have a healthy understanding of all of his attributes, we must first delight in his holiness. And listen, understanding the holiness of God, it does not contradict all of his other attributes. It only enriches them. When you start to understand the holiness of God is when you really start to understand the love of God. And when you understand the heights of his holiness is when you can really enjoy the depths of his grace. And when you understand the uniqueness of his holiness is when you can understand how unique his mercy is to us. And when you grasp his holiness is when you start to grasp his goodness. And his wrath no longer seems mean and cruel when you understand his holiness, his immensity, his eminence, his perfection, his sovereignty, his supremacy, his Patience becomes all the much more sweeter and enjoyable to us when we first delight and understand his holiness. We must understand his holiness and then feast on and enjoy the depth and clarity this will provide us in all of his other attributes. And this changes then how we view our neighbors and our family and friends and maybe others who don't follow Jesus, right? It's not that we are so great and they are so bad. 
because we know in light, in front of a holy God, there is no comparison game. All degrees of sin are irrelevant in the presence of God. So it's not that we even preach a message that other people are so bad. Like, yes, we believe we have all sinned and fallen short, but primarily the message is that God is so good, that God is so holy. Look with me back to Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Isaiah goes from saying, Woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. I am a dead man. To saying, Here I am. And what was in between the two was an unbelievable encounter with the grace of God. So listen, Isaiah was qualified to go and proclaim God to the people, not because necessarily he had all the academics and accolades and resumes that you needed to have. What qualified him was that he had seen the Lord, he had seen the Holy One, and he had encountered his grace. So may we too be a people who beholds the true and living and holy God and may we delight and rest and enjoy the grace that he gives us. And that is what then qualifies us to go and proclaim. And so the next two services will be talking about what beholding this God does amongst us in building up the body of Christ because now God says we are now the temple of this Holy One. So what does beholding him do amongst us in the church? And then the next time we'll meet, we'll talk about what it should do through us in blessing the city. But this morning, may you be reminded that you were made to flourish in the presence of a holy God. And what his holiness has required, his grace has provided.